As we said last week, if I were to ask you to show me where the Christmas story is found in Scripture, my guess is that many of you would first stop at the uh, first of, of Matthew or the first of Luke. Some of you might even take me to John 1. Some of you might take me to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, or Isaiah 9, 6 to, to show me some Old Testament prophecy about Christ's coming and his birth. But as we said last week, my guess is that very few of you would take me to the book of Genesis, and I'm, I'm convinced that none of you would take me where I'm going to take you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Revelation. And uh, as you're, you're turning there, be honest with me for a minute. When you think about Christmas passages from the Bible, how many of you can honestly say that the book of Revelation comes to mind? Anybody? No? No? Well, that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story as it's found in the book of Revelation chapter 12. Now, before we begin, something we need to understand here. Anytime we study a passage of Scripture, one question that we need to ask about the book and the passage that we're looking at is, what type of literature am I studying? We, we've learned in the past that, that there's all different kinds and types of, of literature and genre throughout the scriptures, right? So we need to ask, are we reading a, a, a parable, a poem, a narrative? What are we reading? Because determining that will determine how you read and how you interpret and how you make sense of this particular passage that you're studying. So with that in mind, let me ask you this. What type of book is the book of Revelation? Well, one, it's a letter, right? It's a letter, but it's a very unique letter in that it is prophetic and apocalyptic literature. And some of the the key characteristics of prophetic and apocalyptic literature is that it's full of imagery. It's full of metaphor. It's full of figurative language. And if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you know it contains quite a bit of that, right? Which is one of the reasons why people are so fascinated with the book, but it's also because it's prophetic and apocalyptic and uses a lot of imagery and figurative language, there is a lot of confusion and a whole lot of debate when it comes to understanding this book. And many have a tendency to overemphasize the minor details in this book while completely missing the main message of the book. Well, this morning we don't have time to get bogged down in all the little details of Revelation. So we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing this morning. We're going to stick to the main message of the book as we discuss Revelation chapter 12. So let's begin by looking at it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Look at it with me. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, as many of you know, John wrote the book of Revelation, right? 
The same guy who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but this book is quite a bit different. This is written later in John's life, toward the end of his life, while he is exiled on the island of Patmos. And we know that the book of Revelation is a revelation or a vision that comes to John. I kind of picture this. I picture John just looking up in the sky and watching this, this vision unfold before his very eyes. Look again at verse 1. He says, a great sign appeared where? In heaven, okay? So, so he's looking up in the sky and he's watching this story unfold right in front of him. And in this story, just like in most stories, there are characters that John sees. The first character, the first person in this story is a woman in verse one. And this woman is symbolic. We're gonna discover that when we, uh, as we study a bit further, that she is symbolic for God's people, Israel, okay? It's more than just Mary here. She's symbolic of God's people, Israel. Notice it says, a great sign appeared, okay? A great sign. She is symbolic. She represents God's people, Israel, and God's greater people, the church, and we're going to find that out here as we, we look further into this passage. So in this passage, when you hear the woman, know she represents God's people. And in verse 2, we're told that she is pregnant. So her child is the second character in this story, and we'll talk a little more about him in just a second. And then there is a third character in this story who is the antagonist or the villain of this story. Every good story has one of those, right? Last week, we learned in Genesis 3 that it was Satan in the form of a serpent. Here in Revelation 12, we're going to learn that it's Satan in the form of a dragon. All right? Look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And cast them to the earth. Now, notice here once again that two of our characters here, the woman and the dragon, are referred to as signs. What is a sign? A sign is something that signifies or stands for something else, right? These two characters here are symbolic. We already said the woman signifies God's people, Israel, and it should be pretty obvious who the dragon signifies, right? The dragon signifies Satan. And once again, this is going to become very obvious as we continue to study it. John tells us that directly, that the dragon symbolizes or signifies Satan here. And the dragon here is described by John as a powerful yet terrible being. Look at verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. As we said earlier, every good story has an antagonist, right? Every good story has conflict. We learned that last week. And here in verse 4, we have both an antagonist and we have conflict. You have this great dragon and in verse 4 we learn what he's trying to do there is this woman who is pregnant 
and she's about to give birth, and there is this dragon standing in front of her, and as soon as the woman delivers the baby, the dragon is waiting to devour the child. Now, that is a terrible image, isn't it? Some of you are thinking, Graham, what are you thinking? You know, it's Christmas time, and you're talking to us about dragons trying to devour babies. What are you thinking? Let's just sing Silent Night and let's go home, right? Well, stick with me. Like I said, this story is going to help us better understand the Christmas message. But this is scene number one in this story that John is watching unfold in the sky. Scene number one is the dragon versus the child. And here's what's interesting here. Get this. This conflict, this tension between good and evil, God and Satan, we see throughout the entire Bible, don't we? We talked about it last week at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And here we see it in Revelation chapter 12. This theme of good versus evil, God versus Satan, this tension has existed since the beginning. There has almost always been this tension between good and evil. Since the, since the very beginning of time, there has almost always been this tension between good and evil and God and Satan. God, who does not change, who is eternal, he's always been righteous and holy and and just and shortly after creating Satan. Satan turned away from God and he rebelled against him and he was cast from heaven. And since then, he has always stood in opposition toward God, challenging the integrity of his good word and trying to challenge and frustrate his good plan. And, and we, are, we are drawn to these types of stories, right, of good versus evil. We can relate to these stories, right, because deep down we know that this concept of good versus evil is a fundamental part of life. It is. So this is the main theme in our story. Remember that. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. She, the woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Notice talking in the past tense here. We're learning of a story that has taken place. Here we have the Christmas story, folks, right here in Revelation. When I mentioned earlier that we were going to look at the Christmas story in the book of Revelation, here it is right here in verse 5. This child here is Jesus. Notice it says she's going to give birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, who will be the king of the world. This is referring to Jesus here. Now, granted, this version of the Christmas story is the short Cliff Notes version of the story, right? We don't have any mention here of shepherds or a manger or wise men. So parents, if you're trying to hurry your kids to bed on on Christmas night, you can read this story from Revelation 12, 5 and be done real quick, all right? It's very brief on Jesus' life. John writes, he was born, he's to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, and he's caught up to God and to his throne. So we don't have mention here of the miracles that Jesus performed. We don't see the death of Jesus. It just says he's born, and then he returns to be with the Father. Now, why does John leave out all of these details here? Here's why. Get this. Because the main point John is making here 
is that in this battle between the dragon and the child, the dragon is defeated. The child wins. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Really, John's message in Revelation, we have complicated it because we get bogged down on the details, but it's a simple message. It's a message of victory in Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. This child is born, he accomplishes his mission, and he's raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father. So the dragon loses. The dragon is defeated. That's the first scene. The child versus the dragon, and the child wins. Here's the second scene, number two. The dragon versus the angels. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil, there he is right there, the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Once again... Right here in this passage, we have a great story of good versus evil. And there are so many questions that we want to ask when reading this passage, right? There, there really is. I mean, for one, what does it look like for angels and demons to fight? I kind of want to know what that looks like, don't you? We see a lot of paintings drawn where you have the angels dressed in white with their flaming swords and the, and the demons are grotesque and they're dressed in black and red and they're always underneath the angels and, you know, we see pictures of that, but we don't really know, do we? Here's another question that, that people have differences of opinion on. When does this happen? Is this before the beginning of the world? Some scholars believe that. Is this after the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? I mean, biblical scholars, conservative evangelicals, they land all across the map on this. And, and they have debated these things forever. And I'm sure that we could sit down in a Bible study setting and discuss and debate these things for hours. But is that why John wrote this book? Is it? Did he write this book? For us to sit down and argue back and forth and be all divided over what the locusts represent. Is that why he did this? Did did he write this this book out so that we would create these charts from the ceiling to the floor, say this represents that and this represents that, and the Antichrist has got to be this person, or no, 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 he's that person, and, and take the newspaper and read it back into the Bible and create all these conspiracy theories about how the end is going to go down. Do you think that's why John wrote this book? What good would that have done the Christians in his day? that were facing persecution. I mean, he's writing to to Christians living in around the the Roman provinces of Asia, and their situation was they were going through terrible persecution at the hands of the Romans. So John is writing them with this message. Here's his message. He's saying to them, hey, listen, I know it seems like Right now, you guys are fighting a losing battle. I know it seems as if the dragon Satan is winning and that you're on the losing team because your friends and family are being snatched up and you're putting your life on the line on a daily basis for the cause of Christ. But John is writing Revelation here to say, know this, you're on the winning team. You're on the right side, the winning side. That's John's point here. 
He's writing to comfort those who are being persecuted and he's telling them, you're on the winning team. Therefore, continue to be faithful because though it seems as if Satan has the upper hand, in the end, he loses. He has always been on the losing end and he will always. He has been defeated and he will be defeated. And John is writing to them here and he's encouraging them to be strong, to be faithful, to be brave, to be courageous in the midst of the war they're in. That's why he writes this book to them. So scene number two is the dragon versus the angels and the angels win. Now let's move to scene three of the story. The dragon versus God's people. Here's the good news. The dragon, Satan, gets kicked out of heaven. We know that happened, right? He gets defeated by the child. He gets defeated by the angels. He gets thrown to earth so the good guys win. That's the good news. But here's the bad news. Guess who's on the earth with the dragon? When the dragon gets hurled to the earth, who's on the earth with the dragon? God's people, right? So scene three is the dragon versus God's people. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So here's what happens. The dragon gets kicked out of heaven. He gets hurled to the earth and him getting kicked out of heaven and him getting thrown to the earth does not make him happy. Makes him angry. And guess who he lets his anger out on? The woman, right? Boy, the people in John's day knew all about that, didn't they? They were being put to death for their faith. They knew all about that, being pursued by this beast, this dragon. He was originally opposed to the child. He wanted to defeat the child, but he lost. And he went to war with the angels, and he lost. And he was kicked out of heaven. He was hurled to the earth. And then the dragon turns his attention to God's people, to the woman. So he goes after her, and he pursues her. But guess what? He's not successful because she's protected by God. Look at verse 14 through 16. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. Many believe that's false teaching because it comes out of the mouth and lies come from Satan. He's trying to wash out the truth. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, I like that there. I know there's a lot of imagery here. There's a lot of of figurative language here. We could really get bogged down in this, but get this. This is what, what John is basically saying here, folks. God protects his people, the church, from the enemy, from the dragon, ultimately, His persecution, it lasts for a time. But there's victory in the end, right? They have hope beyond this life. So God ultimately protects his people. And then look at what this does to the dragon in verse 17. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman. See, first he he went after those Jewish people who had responded to Christ positively. We know persecution first poured out on them. But then he he gets even more enraged that that this gospel is spreading. And look here. Look at what he does in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the dragon becomes even more enraged because he can't get to the woman because she is secured by God. And then he goes even stronger after the people of God and after the church and he makes war against them. Now notice at the end of verse 17 how God's people are described here. John says, Satan makes war against those who keep the commandments of God, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So get this. John is letting his original readers know, you guys are living in scene three. You are. They're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. They're being put to death for their faith. And John is writing to them to tell them, he's saying, I know life is tough for you guys right now. I know your friends and your loved ones are being put to death. Your lives are on the line for the cause of Christ. I know it feels as if the enemy is winning, but I'm writing this book to you. I'm sending this letter to you to let you know that you are on the winning team. You are secure in Christ. Therefore, keep following hard after God. Keep obeying God's commandments. Stay true to the truth of God's word. Keep holding, keep holding, keep holding to the testimony of Jesus. No matter what, that's pretty much the story. It really is. Now that we've heard the story, What I like to do to end this morning is just draw out some principles from this story that will help you when thinking about Christmas as a believer as we look at Revelation 12. The first lesson learned here in Revelation 12, especially in verse 5, is this. Number one, the Christmas story should make us humble because Christ is chosen to identify with us. Christ is chosen to identify with us, folks. That should make us humble. That's what we learn here in in Revelation 12. In this story, we learn, especially in verse 5 of Revelation 12, we learn that Christ is chosen to identify with us. He has not remained removed from us. John tells us in verse 5, the woman will give birth to Jesus and he will, will rule the nations. What do we sing at Christmas time? And he shall reign for what? Forever and ever. That's the Christmas message. That's the message in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. And that should humble us because this king has come to identify with us. John shows us here how much Christ has identified with us. He, God the Son, has chosen to identify with us to such an extent that he became one of us. He became a child. He became an infant. This is the story of Christmas. This is what we celebrate, the fact that Jesus, who is God, identified with us by becoming one of us in order to redeem us. How incredible is that, folks? 
the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who has existed throughout all of history with the Father, who is, who is equal with the Father in terms of his essence, in terms of his, his nature at a certain point in history, he chose to identify with us by becoming one of us so that he could redeem us. And folks, that message there should humble you at Christmas time, and it should make you joyful, should make you worshipful. Like I said last week, we have a song to sing, don't we? And it's more than just, I'm thankful that my family's in town. I'm thankful that my kids enjoy their presence. We have a song to sing as believers. This is our song. This is our song. God has become one of us in order to redeem us. That's the message of Christmas. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. Talked about this last week too, right? Genesis 3.15, we learned that. These two passages, they serve as bookends of God's gospel story. Genesis 3.15 and Revelation 12. In John's gospel, John explains it in this way, another great Christmas passage. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christ did, folks. He became one of us. He identified with us by becoming one of us. And again, the fact that the eternal Son of God would do that for us should humble us. It should humble us. So the Christmas story should humble us because Christ has chosen to identify with us. Here's the second point we learn here. The Christmas story should also give us confidence because Christ has been victorious. Christ has defeated Satan. We learn that here in in Revelation 12 as well. I I said last week, and I've said this over and over again around Christmas time, when, when we think of Christmas believers, not only should we think of this child in a barn in Bethlehem, that's an important part of the story, but you know what should come to mind when we think of Christmas? Victory. Victory. Victory in Jesus. That's why I love singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's why I I, I love singing uh, O Holy Night. I mean, it's a celebration of victory in the barn in Bethlehem. Look at verse 5 again. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Notice the phrase here that says, Christ will rule the nations with the rod of iron. That comes from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 was written looking forward to the day when God would ultimately triumph over evil. It's a prophecy that says one day God is going to appoint his king and his king is going to rule with a rod of iron. And John in Revelation is telling us that's Jesus. That's Jesus right there. He is the one who has come. He is the one who fulfills that promise. Christ has been victorious. He has defeated Satan. That's the story here. Now, the next question we need to ask is this. How does he do it? How did he defeat Satan? How do we have victory in Jesus? As we discussed last week and as we discussed earlier, Satan was set out against God. 
From the start, he was, he was initially set out to destroy Christ. He was set to destroy him in the, in the first century. Remember, he was, he was ready, as, as John describes him, as like a dragon ready to devour this child up. How then does the table turn on him? How does this child go on to defeat Satan? Well, he does it in the most unlikely of ways, doesn't he? He does it by giving his own life up. Talked about this last week. The way this child defeats Satan is by growing up to eventually give his life up and over. He allowed himself to die. He laid his life down. Isn't that an interesting and unexpected way for this child to defeat the dragon? This child grows up and eventually allows himself to be betrayed, tried, and killed. And you have to think that when Satan witnessed this, he had to have been thinking, I've done it. Finally. I have finally destroyed him. He is no more. He has lost the battle. I have won the war. That's what all of Jesus' followers thought as well. The day Christ died was the darkest in human history. The purest of all to ever live was betrayed, denied, tried, mocked, beaten, and hung between criminals on a shameful cross. And right after Christ died, it did seem as if all hope was lost, folks. It seemed as if God had failed. But what's so ironic about the cross is that though at this time this event was thought by Christ's followers to be the most tragic of events, it ends up being one of the most important, one of the most spiritually beneficial accomplishments in all of human history. I love the hymn, Low in the Grave He Lay. Old hymn, we, we normally sing it around Easter, but you know what? We need to sing it around Christmas too. It really captures this. Listen to the lyrics here. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. That's a pretty dim beginning, isn't it? Waiting for the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with the mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. You know, there are a few things in this life that we can be confident about because this life is filled with so many uncertainties. But get this, this is one thing that we can take to the bank. This is one thing we can be certain of. This is one thing we can be assured of. Christ has defeated the enemy. He has overcome death by his own death so that in him we might have life. And guess what? He's returning. He is coming back. John writes about that here in Revelation. He is coming back to bring this victory, one at Calvary, to completion. Once again, this is the reason John writes 
this book of Revelation to give God's people confidence that though times are tough, there is victory in Jesus. He is, he is writing them and he's telling them, I know you're currently living in scene three where Satan is alive and well on the earth and is waging war against God's people. But I want to tell you that you have a reason to be hopeful because Christ has defeated Satan. He has conquered death with his own death so that you might through him have life and be victorious. What a message for Christmas. This is what's so great about the Christmas story from Revelation. This is what I love about Revelation 12, 5. Get this. It goes from birth to victory. That's where we need to go. We need to go this Christmas season from birth to victory. When we think of the child in a manger in Bethlehem, we should praise God the victory that he provided for us. This child in the manger goes up, grows up, eventually defeats the dragon. He defeats Satan. And as a result, we too who are in him can share in his victory and we in him can be victorious. So hopefully, if you didn't realize it already, you see there's a whole lot more going on with the Christmas story than just simply a baby and some angels and shepherds and wise men, right? Christmas should remind us that there is a war that is being fought right now as we speak. Christmas should remind us that we are at war. There is this battle continuing to be waged, continuing to be fought between good and evil. But the good news that we've learned today is that God has already won. He's already won. And the way he has won is by identifying with us through his son in order that we might come to be made right with him and might identify with him and know him. And I, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to end with this. I want to end by encouraging you to make sure you're on the right side of the war. The way you get on the right side is by identifying with God's man, God's Messiah, Christ the Lord, by trusting in his person and in his work alone for your salvation. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would do so before you leave here today.